Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Radically Loved Podcast. I am so honored and delighted to bring you our guest today. We have Jen Soriano on the show, who is a Filipinx American writer, performer, scholar, and movement builder who is originally from the Chicago area. She's the author of a few other books. The one that we're going to touch on today is the latest. And the title of that book is called Nervous. I'm trying to hold it up here if you're watching on YouTube. Subtitle Essays on Heritage and Healing. And this has been, I'm trying to search for the right word to articulate what this book has brought up for me and what I'm sure it's bringing up for other readers in the way of not just educating and illuminating the idea of trauma and pain and intergenerational trauma and these really huge meaty themes of like upward mobility and immigration from one country to another, but also just like the way that you write, Jen, it really speaks to, and maybe it's because I I feel like I can see myself in you. I'm sure so many other readers feel the same way. Mm in terms of like their experience as kids and what they see around them and how they relate to the world. So first of all, I just want to say thank you for writing this. Thank you for sharing it and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tessa. That means a lot to me. I mean, I don't think anybody writes a book thinking that right, that it's just going to sit in a drawer and not reach anybody. I feel like I mean, it, there's a role for that too, you know, to be able to write for yourself. But I definitely wrote this book in the hopes that it would connect with people who could identify because of various things, whether that's identity or similar experiences in childhood or similar experiences through migration and history of empire. So it's really good to hear that that you identified with it in some way. Yeah, thank you. And I mentioned, so there's three main themes that... I'm pulling out of this as I read it and I'm about halfway through. So I'm sure more will come up as I continue on. But the themes that I'm seeing that I really want to dive into today are, like I mentioned, success. The idea of success as it relates to upward mobility, as it relates to kind of what seems like I've seen this in my life with friends and family members, how that can oftentimes translate into isolation or feeling of loneliness. Second theme is pain, understanding it, how we kind of culturally seem to historically learn to push through it or and or ignore it and why that is detrimental. And then third, and this is in no particular order, <laughs> but the nervous system and gosh, it's such a it's such an interesting lens since your father was a neurosurgeon. And then the title of the book, Nervous. And so I wanted to, maybe let's start there with the title of the book, Nervous, that 
experience you had as a child growing up with your father being a neurosurgeon, and then your condition, if you tell readers who are coming to this information for the first time, just a little bit about your background in terms of your own experience of your nervous system as a young child. Thank you for pulling out those themes. And I'm happy to start there, but I also wanted to say that I think you're the first person that I'm going to get to talk about the class theme with. And I really appreciate that you pulled that out because it's an important one to me, even though there's only one essay that is like explicitly focused on that. It is an important one to me and sort of exploring the kinds of societies that we want to live in that are organized toward well-being and toward buffering people from trauma rather than consistently traumatizing people and keeping us in traumatized states. And I think that honestly, capitalism is one of the, the structures that keeps us in a consistently traumatized state. And it is one of the things that, you know, keeps people constantly pushing for some kind of upward mobility. So I just wanted to kind of quickly respond to that before I before I forgot. But to then back up. Yeah, I wrote this book because I'd say just in the past 10 years, I started to have the experience of, oh, this is what it feels like to not be nervous all the time. Like, wow, like, oh, that feels pretty good. Because I pretty much was born, I think, with a very dysregulated nervous system. It's one of the things that I explore in the book. It's not something that I understood for a long time. But I essentially was born probably through a pretty traumatic birth experience. And because of that physical trauma, then kind of came into the world literally fighting for my life. And then after that, experienced a childhood that was pretty lonely, even though I grew up with two brothers who I have a great relationship with. We grew up in an isolated suburb and um, typical immigrant story, typical kind of middle-class, lower middle-class story of parents working all the time. Also a very typical immigrant story. And I was left alone a lot. And I also write about my experience of emotional neglect, which I think is something that is not talked about that much because we tend to go towards the most egregious and kind of severe sounding forms of abuse when we talk about abuse. And I think that there's something about our society, the sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, kind of walk it all off, very patriarchal kind of mentality that doesn't allow us to accept emotional neglect as a real form of abuse, but it is. And uh, I write about how it affects developing nervous systems in a way that can determine, not determine, but affect and influence your health conditions for the rest of your life. And that was the case for me, where a combination of this physical birth trauma and also emotional neglect, and then I, I find out and explore through the rest of the book how there's also layers of historical trauma from previous generations and ancestral trauma that I've inherited that all commingle in my body to create this baseline state of agitation and nervousness and constant defense that kept my body in this state of pain and dis-ease. And it really wasn't until I started to heal and start started to feel what it was like to get a full night's sleep, <laughs> for example, and um, to be able to be calm in the presence of other people as opposed to very skittish and socially anxious, 
that I realized, oh, there's another way to be. And this state of nervousness, of chronic nervousness, does not have to be our natural state of being. Yeah. I think that's so key, that last sentence you just said, this chronic state of nervousness does not have to be our natural state of being. And, and certainly it shouldn't be. And But it, it seems to be a pandemic within me. I experienced this in, in my body. I think this is why I gravitate towards the health and wellness realms of yoga and meditation because my nervous system is pretty, it feels like a more often than not in an anxious state. One, there's one phrase in the book, it's early on, on page 28, that just jumped off the page. I mean, you're talking about the nervous system here in terms of like that Western view and how you're describing how your father was trained in the Western medical realm of brain surgery. And most of us are to view the nervous system like a top-down brute force machine fueled by conscious choice. Machine fueled by conscious choice is the phrase that really jumps out the page at me because it is speaking to this idea of that, yeah, we should be able to, and it's like a badge of honor to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just kind of, you know, the quote unquote American way of muscling your way through things. And if you do have some sort of dysregulation that you're experiencing in your life, that it's probably quote unquote your fault and don't complain. And then later on, I think it might be in this similar body of work, you start to introduce the idea of neuroplasticity. I did not realize it was kind of coined around, I think you said 1856, that early, something. And like I'm that, not right? sure that the actual phrase was used back then, but right. definitely the concept of the nervous system being able to change and neurons being able to develop new connections, that concept is it's not entirely new. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's been developed and researched in new ways just in the past 10 years. But the the idea that it, you know our nervous system is not a machine. Yeah. It's not new. Definitely. And I'm sure that probably in indigenous cultures, if we even looked into that, you know, or like Egyptian medicine, there might even have been concepts of that back then. Yeah. Well, oh, that was the other thing that I loved about the structure of this book is that in the beginning, the juxtaposition of the historical development of diagnoses around, you're talking about the uterus, but it very much relates to the nervous system. That was so cool. I learned so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. I wanted to say, you know, when you pulling out the the piece about um, how we in Western society tend to think about our brains as, you know, controlling everything. And we are then have these bodies that just listen to the command center that is the brain, you know, and our machines and the will controls everything. I'm really happy to be living in an era where it seems like there's more and more of a sea change of understanding that that's actually not scientifically true. <laughs> that, you know, the Cartesian idea of the separation of mind and body is something that um, is not only scientifically untrue, it doesn't help us heal because it uh, leads to that whole expectation that you can think your way out of illness, <laughs> right? That, oh, you just, you got to just uh, buck up and where there's a will, there's a way. And that if you have mysterious chronic disease, that it is your fault and you're just weak in the mind, right? When there's also this related but kind of contradictory thing around, oh, your illness isn't real because it's all in your head. 
Mm-hmm. And it just, it doesn't acknowledge the reality of the fact that we experience health and wellness and well-being and disruptions to health and wellness and well-being in our entire soma, which includes mind and body, and that psychological conditions affect our entire bodies. And then the state of our bodies affect our psychological and mental health. And uh, I think that a lot of people, sort of lay people, understand that actually better than traditional medical doctors are equipped to understand. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That's what I was trying to articulate. You said it much better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love that. This really, I think, lends itself to move in the direction of talking about pain. I mentioned, we've already kind of touched on the subject of how historically we might approach pain as like a badge of honor, learning how to push through it, learning kind of like toxic or just unhelpful habits and behaviors around a relationship with pain. I love this quote from Audre Lorde on pain. Pain is important, how we evade it, how we succumb to it, how we deal with it, how we transcend it. This to me is an invitation to say, hey, my pain or whatever emotion it is, but let's use pain in this instance, that pain is your body telling you, hey, pay attention, I have something to tell you. There's something going on here that you need to pay attention to. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about pain. In your experience, you have lots of experience with it. And what do you want to add to that conversation? Thanks for asking that. I think uh, the first thing I would want to add is just the reminder that our pain isn't our fault. I think even though there's been a lot of developments in pain science and the treatment of pain just in the past 10 years... I think particularly women, femmes, and uh, non-binary people who experience chronic pain are still routinely dismissed and undertreated for pain in, in conventional medical settings. So I think first off, if anyone is experiencing chronic pain of any kind, believe your body, <laughs> even if others don't believe you because pain is invisible and it's hard to quantify and it's hard to objectively describe. So you're the only one that really understands the pain that you're going through and believe yourself. And treatment of pain is important. So pain management is a human right, I believe. So for people who are experiencing chronic pain, it can be so debilitating, both physically, but also mentally and emotionally. And so to be able to get adequate treatment, whether that's in the form of non, non-medical interventions, like being able to have access to yoga and meditation, or whether that's in the form of pharmaceuticals like opioids that honestly, even though there's an opioid crisis and they're highly addictive, some people need them. <laughs> some people need them and they're a tool, right? They're not a long-term solution, but they can be a tool for acute phases of chronic pain. So I wanted to start there. The other two things I would add are that people who don't have chronic pain often wonder what it's like. You know, does it feel like you got stabbed over and over and over and over? And for me, there was actually a part of the book that got edited out And I wish it hadn't. I wish I had put it back in. But it was part of the first essay of the book. It was an earlier version of the first essay, which is called Brief History of Her Pain, where I compare my chronic pain to the pain of labor and birth. And I had a beautiful birth where I did not want to have any pain medications. I chose that in part because I really wanted 
to see what it was going to be like compared to my chronic pain. And for me personally, it was a very liberating experience and affirming because I realized that the difference between pain that you know clearly has purpose and that you know will have a beginning and an end and pain that is mysterious, you have no idea why you have it and it feels like it's going to continue forever is that it's worlds apart. And the birthing pain felt so mild to me compared to my experience of chronic pain. It really had everything to do with a framework and a narrative around understanding it, which is one of the things that made me want to write this book. I wanted to have more of a framework and an understanding of why, why this pain, right? And the first essay kind of explores how throughout history, one of the answers to that question has been, well, because you're possessed by the devil, right? Or because you're practicing witchcraft, that's why this pain. And so I wanted to find obviously a different answer to that question. And um, it's not a simple answer, but you know, in the book, one of the answers that I do explore is the root cause of unresolved trauma. So unresolved trauma can be directly connected to chronic pain. It's not always, but in my case, it was. Hey, everyone. A quick note from one of our amazing sponsors. We're so honored to have OneSkin sponsoring today's podcast. I'm so excited about this product for so many reasons. One of them being that this is a company that was founded by a team of four female PhD level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. And so personally for me, into my 40s now, having dealt with skin issues, basically from teen years all the way through my 30s, I can't tell you how many products I have gone through over the years with so many claims of trending skincare products that promise smoothing wrinkles, firming skin, and giving that youthful glow, but not really delivering the results. And so I'm so excited to let you know that one skin, I can actually see the difference on my skin. And it makes a huge difference to me in my life because having gone through something like that and early adolescence and into my adulthood, I really want to make sure that my skin stays youthful and just enjoy it as I age into my lovely 40s and beyond. So what's really cool and unique about this product, OneSkin, after testing thousands of peptides, they discovered this. OS1. The OS1 peptide is scientifically proven to target aged, also called senescent cells, the main source of skin aging and actually reduces the biological age of skin by several years. So their flagship product, which is the one I'm using, OS1 Face, is clinically validated to improve firmness, fine lines, and overall tone and appearance. So who doesn't want that? I mean, are you with me? And I'm sure most of you out there can relate to this. When you have healthier skin, you have better looking skin, and you just feel better about yourself. You know what I mean? So Radically Loved is so honored to be offering our listeners, that's you all, for a limited time, 15% off OneSkin with our code radicallyloved at oneskin.co. And one more thing I want to mention about this company is all of the testing and research they put into their products in a third-party 12-week clinical study, OS 
face was clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier and significantly decrease visible signs of aging. That's wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users and firmness in 95.5%. That is pretty significant, right? <laughs> so one skin is for everyone that wants to prevent or reverse the signs of aging with a groundbreaking approach. One Skin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. And I'd say it's time for you, me, and all of us to experience a new skin health routine at a discounted rate today. Why not, right? You can get 15% off with the code RADICALLYLOVED at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code RADICALLYLOVED. We only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. Yeah, that was so illuminating too. You know, and I feel like at least this was part of my young education. I think as early as elementary school is around the Salem witch trials and how easy it was for, and this is relatively not that long ago that we could burn a person at the stake because... Literally, one of the reasons was that they were experiencing pain in their body. That just blew my mind. It was a nice reminder. Nice, I don't know if it's the right word, but it was a good reminder to just be grateful for, you mentioned this earlier, where we are today. It feels like the direction we're going is more open conversation around this, more willingness to, I guess, be a little bit more compassionate with ourselves and explore more resources and and different ways to just, yeah, be be kinder with ourselves. Thank you for sharing yes. the birth story. That That's really interesting. Yeah, of course. Okay, so class and the idea of upward mobility. This is a conversation I know Rosie would feel the same, that it would be near and dear to her heart as well. And I'll tell you a little bit about my backstory and the reason why I always, anytime I find this in literature or anywhere in the conversation out there in the world, really speaks to me It is because my partner is from Mexico. And like you, he had parents who migrated here in, he was about 16 when his parents came to the States and that split their family apart. So he and his sister stayed in Mexico. His parents came here. They really did not have a choice. And it was so that they could continue to provide for their children and literally did not have a choice. So their kind of like trajectory became working this insane amount of hours, sending money back to their kids. You talk about like the Filipino care package, like all the things that people will put in it and send home. Very similar. Buy-in box. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very similar here. And then eventually, so 10 years later, they worked in the States. And then after I met my partner, we were able to move them back to Mexico with the mm-hmm. this idea that they would retire. But I guess the trade-off for that was that my partner and I would provide for them financially, which to me was like a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to help them out. They helped us out. We're going to help that we're family, right? But at the same time, here's where I'm going with this. I find it interesting that When I first met my partner, it was very much like huge family, very traditional Mexican culture, lots of laughter, lots of music, lots of food, everyone together all the time. That's how I met and was introduced to his family, his culture. After we got married, that felt like because we live in the States, his family is back in Mexico, that felt very isolating. 
And it was something that attracted me to the family and then felt like, oh, but we don't get to have that experience. And I'd be curious to see what his, I'm sure he has a whole different experience having been the one that lived through that and still continues to live through that and makes the choice to stay here so that he can provide for his family back there. You kind of have a different story because your family nucleus stayed intact, but for all intents and purposes, you're kind of isolated from your broader family and your culture at large. Okay, so that's what I have to say on it. But I do want to, there's so much more, right? There's so much more politics. There's so much more bureaucracy. There's so much more PTSD, right? The isolation, the loneliness. So where do you want to take that conversation? What else do you want to say? Well, thanks for sharing that story about you and your partner. I mean, it makes me think about how What I wrote about in the book, in the essay called Mobility, was driven by the impulse to kind of unpack the fact of migration from an American colony specifically as something, as a force that uh, had traumatic impacts (laughs) on my family and and on me, although my parents wouldn't describe it that way. So... The fact of migration from an American colony is very similar to migrating from any place that's adversely or, you know, badly impacted by the global economy (laughs) in any way, right? Why did your partner have to move to the U.S.? Well, I'm not going to assume anything about their specific circumstances, but what I do know about the larger global forces (laughs) is that there are global policies that American foreign policy has encouraged that have essentially rendered the economies of other countries untenable for many people who live in the countries themselves. And that was the case for the Philippines through direct colonial rule, but it's also the case for other places like Mexico through other types of policies like NAFTA. The ways that those policies and the school policies and practices impact families is 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 very diverse, right? Of course, there's going to be families who are like, we love those things, you know, it gave us the opportunity to come to America and now we're doing better. My experience is complicated. It's not so objectively like, oh, it was it was really bad back there. And that's why my parents came. And it's not so objectively either like, oh, and then they came and everything was just like so much better than back home, right? There's people who have to flee gang violence to come to the U.S. There's people who literally have no way of supporting their families. And that's very common in the Philippines. And that's why there's so many overseas workers who have to leave and send money back home, like you described that your partner had to do. But in my family's case, it's a little bit of a case study of how much is enough, right? Which I think is just a broader question that we should always be asking in our society about how we want to organize things because in our current society, I think we're pretty much trained to think that nothing is ever enough. We always have to buy the latest phone or, you know, the newest kind of sneaker trend. Otherwise, we're not enough. We always have to be earning more because otherwise you don't have enough to pay your bills or to pay or send your kid through college. And, you know, I think In my book, what I was exploring was the way that American colonialism and capitalism can come together to create this very, very deep-seated drive, which I think that my father definitely had 
around you're never going to have enough unless you become the best, you make as much money as possible, and you come out on top, like the American colonial rulers were on top in the Philippines. And so I talk about how both my mother and my father actually could have had jobs in the Philippines. They actually already did have jobs lined up, him as a doctor and my mom as a pharmacist. But my dad chose to come to the States because there was actually a direct pipeline for foreign medical graduates from the Philippines to come and fulfill and fill gaps and needs in the healthcare industry. And to him, that was like, oh, that's what I have to go do. That's how I can have enough. So he left behind what he describes as very happy community in a place in Manila that some people would describe as a ghetto, as a very poor area of Manila called Tondo. But he describes his child as very happy because he was surrounded by cousins. And, you know, he was always playing in the streets with his cousins and swimming in the river. And he left that extended family web to come to the States where there were some friends that he had graduated from medical school, school with, but nothing like the fabric of family support like he had had in the Philippines. And in fact, it was almost like the more successful that he got in the U.S., the more cut off he became from them because his identity became the person who sends money back, not the person who actually stays emotionally connected to his family. And that impacted me pretty severely because I'm a person who turns out, you know, once I overcame social anxiety, I'm a very social person and I actually really need a lot of people around me. And I didn't grow up having any aunts or cousins around me. And that actually is a pretty unusual situation for Filipino Americans. And I attribute it to my father's pretty extreme drive to come out on top. Yeah. Wow. I want to pull on this thread a little bit longer. And you mentioned something at the beginning of our chat about, you kind of posed it as a question, which I don't know, maybe we don't have an answer to it, but I want us to maybe dream a little bit about this idea of what kind of society do you want to live in? Let's say we, whether or not you agree with capitalism, think it's a great thing or hate it, or you're somewhere in between, let's say capitalism weren't on the table. What kind of society? do we want to live in? What does that look like? How would we get there? And around this conversation, upward mobility at what cost, how do we separate that from like, it's almost like, I think the question is around when is enough enough, which is something that you're speaking to. And how do we kind of stop ourselves from falling into that trap of, I don't know, quote unquote, the American dream, the car, the job, the house, the two kids, that kind of thing, you know? I love these questions that you're asking, Tessa. (laughs) How fun is it that we get to be on this podcast just dreaming about the world that we want to have? Thank you. This is exactly what I want to be doing on a Tuesday afternoon. I think in terms of ideas like time, you know, having time, the world I want to live in, is a world where time doesn't feel like such a scarce commodity. Where like even time is monetized. You know, I want to be in a world where we can feel like it's not a luxury to take time to slow down and to be in deep relationship with other people and also reconnect with the cycles of nature. In some ways, it's 
almost like trying to recover pre-industrial society in terms of time, but in, you know, in a way that's not about, oh, let's, you know, completely unplug from the internets and you know go back and farm the land. I do think that we're heading into an era where there's going to be a lot of opportunities to shape some pretty groundbreaking new ways of being. For better or for worse, that's what crises will bring. And um, we're heading into pretty serious climate crises. So what are we going to do with each other when we face year-round wildfires, you know, and increasing drought? How are we going to be with each other? And what I would like is to not have a society where it's only the people who have enough money to pay for private supplies of water and bunkers, you know, it's not just those people who are going to survive and thrive, right? But that we actually have a society that is based and organized around, actually on a previous show of yours, something that really stood out to me was when Young Pueblo was talking about their book and the structures of compassion, right? That, that, that he's advocating for. And I think I completely agree with that. We need structures that are more about compassion and less about production and consumption. I also think that we need structures that acknowledge disparities in power and equity and really look at trying to support a society that works for the most vulnerable among us. Because when it works for the most vulnerable, right, for disabled people, for people who are targeted because of race or ethnicity or religion or sexuality or gender identity, then it works for everybody. And so there's, I think, a society just of feeling that scarcity is a myth, (laughs) that there's enough for us all. And that the way that we interact with each other and support each other and provide conditions of trust and safety for each other is the foundation upon which we can build those structures of compassion and well-being for all. Yeah, I want to live in that world too. (laughs) I truly believe that this is how change begins. Another previous conversation we had on Radically Loved was with the author of Brave Thinking, Mary Morrissey. And she talks about how everything is created twice. And the first creation of the thing is having the thought or planting the seed. And that's how everything is created out into the material world. Somebody had to think it at some point. And if we stop ourselves from thinking, dreaming, creating these things that we want to see in our lives and actually have and be able to hold in our hands or do then it won't get created. So these kinds of conversations are important, not just you and me, Jen, but like everyone out there that's listening. If there's something that you want to see in your life, if there's some kind of change that you want to make, have that conversation, write it down, let it become this thing that you breathe life into. And that's how we create change. I believe it has to start somewhere. Um, Yes, completely (laughs) agree. Yes. So Jen, I do think we should do a round two. I want to keep talking to you. There's so much more to say. You know, we just scratched the surface of these topics. And the same. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do a round two. And for today, to close us out, I'm wondering if you want to share a key takeaway or something that whoever picks up your book is you really want to drive home this point. I hope they take away from it. I think of the book as a love letter to interdependence. 
And so I think a key takeaway would be that um, our bodies are interdependent on each other. Our nervous systems rely on each other to be able to develop and be healthy. So if you're feeling stuck or you know wanting to heal in a different way, and this relates to the point that you just made about thinking and seeding, I think one of the first places to start is where do you feel safe in interdependence? What communities or what individuals or what activities make you feel like, oh, hey, my nervous system is gravitating towards that. Go towards that because that is actually your body telling you that those are the people and the activities and actions that will help you heal. Yeah, that's great advice. I love that question too. Jen, people can find you I'm sure all of the links for everything on your website, jensoriano.net, N-E-T. And do you also like to connect with people on the socials, Instagram, Twitter? I do. I'm mostly on Instagram. And that's Jen Soriano Writes. You can find me on Twitter, but I kind of just peep in and out there. It's Lions Write. Like Lions the Animals and Write, like write a book. Okay, great. Well, I'll make sure all those links get into our show notes. And we will look forward to having you back on the show again soon. I am already looking forward to it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tessa. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.